You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. I, uh, I echo what Ben said earlier. I congratulate you for being here this morning. Uh, we were making, Donna was driving, we were making our third attempt to reach the high school when at one point, I'm preaching, so I, you know, I have to be here. At one point, she looks over and she says, I think you could walk from here. <laughs> uh, and, I, and many thanks to Ellison for, I, I gave her a lot of scripture. And if you're a note taker, uh, you should get your notebook out because you're going to get a lot more. Uh, if you were paying attention, and like she said, this morning's gospel reading might have sounded familiar. It should be. It's the same gospel reading we had last week. Uh, the, perp- the, the reason for that is this week's sermon is going to be pretty much a continuation of what I started last week. I'm not a preacher. Uh, I'm a, my gift is teaching, I think. Uh, but I tried to offer a word of exhortation last week. That was my intent anyway. I wanted to highlight that as Christians, as Christians, we have this broad call upon our lives that we are to live in, we are to dwell in, we are to abide in the heart of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Uh, the problem is we have a tendency, or I, maybe I shouldn't speak for you, I'd speak for myself, we have a tendency to settle. We have a tendency to live outside on the fringe of what God has for us, what God calls us to. And so part of the purpose of last week was a call for self-examination, that we look at our lives and we see where we are. Are we we responding to this call to abide? This morning, I want to pick up and I want to take a little deeper dive into this issue of abiding, and I'm going to ask two very broad questions. Number one, what is required for us to abide in Christ? If, if that's the call on our lives, what is required in order for that to happen? Number two, what is the result of our abiding in Christ? Let me, look, let me read our Old Testament reading this morning, and I'm going to pray quickly, and then we'll get started. I'm going to pick up in Nehemiah 12, uh, chapter 27. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the village of the Netophithites, from Beth Gigal, and from the area of Geba and Asmavath, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, toward the Dun Gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates. Shemaiah, Azariah, Melali, Gilali, Maiah, uh, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hananiah, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, 
led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the side of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshonai gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. Elikam, Messiah, whatever, uh, Miniamum, Micaiah, Eliniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzziah, Jehonan, Elam, and Ezer. The, <laughs> the crowds sang under the direction of Jezehiah, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, let your spirit take the words that are about to be spoken and use them as you see fit. Whisper truth in our hearts the truth of who we are in you and what you have done for us. Imprint that on our hearts. These things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. What we are witnessing in Nehemiah chapter 12 is the culmination of a long process that has been 150 years in the making. What's interesting about this celebration that we see taking place in Nehemiah 12 is that it began 150 years earlier with a pronouncement of judgment and condemnation. We've talked a lot about the people being carried out of, uh, of Jerusalem into Babylon. I don't know that we have talked a lot about why that happened. Over in Jeremiah 19, God sends the prophet Jeremiah with a word to the people. Understand that God, when God brought this people out of Egypt and made them his people... It was under a covenant relationship, a covenant of law. And God had told them, I will be your God and you will be my people as long as you are obedient to the things that I have commanded you to do. And they weren't. They never were. They would enter from time to time into a season of repentance and then they would fall away. And they would repent and then they would fall away. And there reaches a point in time in Jeremiah 19 where the patience of God runs out. Listen to what he says. Behold... I am bringing such disaster on this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. Verse 14, then Jeremiah came from Topeth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. God takes sin seriously. He takes it real seriously. And he brings, he brings Nebuchadnezzar in, and Nebuchadnezzar destroys the city, destroys the wall, destroys most of the people, and carries a remnant off to Babylon. 
But in the midst of condemnation and wrath, God also gave the prophet Jeremiah a promise, a promise of hope. Listen to this, Jeremiah 33, verse 6. This is, this is while Nebuchadnezzar is at the gate, ready to destroy the city. God says this, nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all the nations of the earth. And so what we are given in Jeremiah are these two great characteristics of God. On the one hand, he is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, and he cannot abide sin, and he will not abide sin. On the other hand, we, give this, we have this picture of mercy and grace, and God says, I will restore. And so what we see in Nehemiah 12 is a celebration of the people. They have experienced that. They have lived through that prophecy. They were carried away. They were destroyed. Now they have been brought back. The city has been, the, the wall has been rebuilt. The city has been restored. And as we talked about last week, the people are now ready to move into the city of God and dwell in and abide in the city of God so that all of this will be complete. There is a condition to that. And I don't know if you, I, I read through it quickly, Nehemiah 12, verse 30. As the people are getting ready to begin this celebration and the people are getting ready to go into the city, verse 30 says, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and they purified the gates because those were man-made and they purified the wall because the wall was man-made. We see here the primary condition for dwelling, for abiding in the heart of God. You want to dwell in the heart of the city? You want to dwell in the heart of God? It's real simple. All that's required is purity. You need to be pure of heart, pure of action, pure of word, pure of deed. In a word, you want to dwell in the heart of God? All that's required is perfection. That's it. That's all that's required. You just simply need to be perfect if you want to dwell in the heart of God. I will not speak for you. I, for one, do not consider that to be good news because I'm, I'm as far from perfect. I, I am broken in more ways than I can count. I'm not pure in thought or word or deed. And here's the sad thing. <laughs> There's not a thing I can do to fix it. Not a single solitary thing. If I long to dwell in the heart of God and I am somehow depending upon myself to generate the righteousness and the holiness and the purity that is required for that, then I am lost. And I'm not only lost, I am lost without hope. There is not a thing I can do to fix it. That's not good news. That I have a call to dwell in the heart of God, but I don't have the ability to do that. There is good news, though. The good news is that it does not depend upon me. There's an interesting verse over in Isaiah 64, verse 6. Uh, it's really funny. The translators of this verse, for the sake of uh, decency, uh, were kind of tame in the way they translated it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become 
like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our best, our best, is a stench in the nostrils of God. That's where the good news comes in. Jesus has met this requirement of purity for us. As as we read over uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, unlike the other high priest who had to first purify themselves and then purify the people, Jesus doesn't have to do that. He was pure. He was perfect. He was... Jesus was everything that we are called upon to be in order to dwell in the heart of God. He was that. He lived that. He acted that out. And then Hebrews tells us that he offered himself one time for the sins of the people. Under the Old Testament law, over and over and over again, the the priest would have to come in and daily offer sacrifices that didn't really take away the sins of the people. They just kind of atoned for it. It covered it up. Hebrews tells us that Jesus died once, one time. And that sacrifice was sufficient for all of us. I told him in many church, and I think I've used this phrase before, what we see at the cross is this grand, eternal transaction that takes place. Where where we are standing there clothed in all the filth that Isaiah 64 describes, all the brokenness, everything that we have ever done wrong, we are standing there clothed in that. And Jesus looks at that and he says, I take responsibility for that. I claim that filth as mine. I make it mine. And then somehow, as he takes our sin on himself, the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness, all that is Jesus is transferred to us. 1 John 1, 9, we read that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I learned that, I memorized that when I was in high school. The problem with memorizing scripture is that sometimes you know it and the words just roll off the tongue and you say things and you don't even think about what it is you're saying. There are two words in that that speak to me. If we confess our sin, well, three words. First of all, if we confess our sins, meaning I I need to agree with God the Father. He knows we're guilty. He doesn't need us to tell him that we are guilty. We need to agree in our hearts with him. That's what confession is. I agree with you. I am guilty. I am broken. I am lost. If we do that, two words. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful, meaning that he will always, always, always offer forgiveness. It makes no difference what you have done. I don't, it does not matter. It does not matter the enormity of your sin. It, he will forgive. It's the second word I love. He is faithful and just to forgive. God is justified in offering you mercy because it causes no offense to his sense of justice. 
You see, he can forgive you. He is justified in forgiving you. He has the, he has the authority to forgive you because his wrath for your sin has been poured out. It was poured out on the cross. The, his, his holy and righteous wrath has been expended at Calvary, and therefore, he is justified in offering you mercy. Hebrews 4, Ellison read this. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Uh, the New American Standard says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace. Let us come boldly. Let us come boldly. In the Old Testament times, the high priest would go behind the Holy of Holies once a year and offer sacrifice for the people. And you know what they did when he went back there? They tied a rope around his waist. You know why? So that if something were wrong, if he weren't pure and blah, 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 you know, they could, he, when he got struck dead, they could drag him out. We don't come to the throne of grace like that. We are told to come boldly, to come with confidence that we will receive grace and we will receive mercy. We will receive grace. We will, we will receive what we do not deserve. Mercy, we will not receive the things we do deserve. Every condition for your abiding in the heart of Christ was met by Christ himself. Let me say that again. Every condition for your abiding in the heart of Christ was met by Christ himself. You are pure. What's the result of that? In Nehemiah 12, 43, we read this. <laughs> it says, and on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. They're about to enter into the city. They're about to abide in the city of God. And it says, God gave them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard all throughout the land. Cry of joy that went up. The ultimate need of the heart of man is to be in communion with God. We were created for that. Way back in the garden, we had this perfect union with God the Father. It says he walked with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day. Perfect communion, and we lost that. And there are echoes of that that still speak in our heart, that our heart cries out. There's some, there is an emptiness inside of us that we, that we need the heart of God. We need to be in communion with God. And we try to fill that with so many other things. And nothing, nothing will bring joy to your heart. Not, a, not things, not relationships, not people. Not fully. Not like God can do. The result of abiding in the heart of God is joy. Our gospel reading, and this, this is what really zings me. John chapter 15, verse 9. Jesus says this. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Listen to this, verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, you and your joy may be 
may be complete. It's not just our joy that's involved in this. Our abiding in the heart of God is not just for ourselves. We are so self-centered. We think that salvation is about us, that somehow we, you know, yes, yes, abiding in the heart of God will bring us joy, but you know who else it brings joy? Say it. Somebody tell me. Who else does it bring joy to? God himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, talking about Jesus going to the cross, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You understand, do you know what it was that motivated Jesus off of Gethsemane that night and down into the city where he's arrested and beaten and, and, and crucified? Do you know what moved him off of that? The joy of being in relationship with you. <laughs> the joy that comes to his heart, to the heart of the Father, from being in relationship with you. That is how desperately you are loved. That is how desperately you are wanted. That the heart of God is made glad by, being, by having relationship with you. How do we do this? Second Corinthians 4.18, Paul talks about the fact that we are to look at the things that are not seen. I, I'm sorry, we, are, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We tend to believe what is, you know, the things that we can feel and touch and the things that we can, we, we can see with our senses or we can uh, understand with our senses, we see those things as real. Paul says those things are really not real. You know what's real? What is unseen that is real. Again, going back to Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, looking to Jesus, focusing on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul says Paul says that he was determined he was determined that he would know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That needs to be the simple and single focus of our hearts. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I talked about this last week. When we wake in the morning, as our mind begins to slip into consciousness, let us be a people whose first thoughts go to Christ, knowing that he is there. He's there. He has been there all night long. He's been there waiting for you to wake up. Let your thoughts go to him. Your first thoughts of the day. As you move throughout the insane craziness and chaos 
of the day, know that he is there. He is your constant companion. He is, he is in all that you experience and go through throughout the day. He is there. Understand that you are surrounded by him. He is in you. You are awash in his presence. In everything you do throughout the day, he is there. At the end of the day, as we lay down and, and, and our mind begins to start the process of entering into rest, let our last thoughts be upon him, knowing that once again, he is there. He is present. Let us be a people. Let us be a people who abide in that, who live into that. Let me pray. Father, when we think about what you have done, it's, it's stunning to our minds. It is stunning to our minds that you would want us so badly. That you would find joy in relationship with us and you would pay such a cost to have that. I pray these words would speak to our hearts that we would see who we are in you and what we are in you and what we mean to you. Let us be a people whose hearts will go to you, that you are always in our minds, that we see what is not seen, that we are aware of your presence in every moment of the day. Let us be that people. Let us be a people who live in the heart of Christ. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.